It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The Israel-Hamas war does seem to be broadening out. The U.S. and the U.K. striking back against Houthi rebels who've been targeting shipping in the Red Sea. And now the Houthi are vowing to strike back. Oil higher as a result. Let's take a deeper dive into the story. A look also at the political fallout. Wendy Schiller, professor at Brown University, joins us now. Wendy, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Did the Biden administration have much of a choice in its response? And what's the worry about how deeply we may or may not get involved in a broader conflict? Well, I mean, I don't think the Biden administration had any choice. I mean, obviously, uh, we are a major superpower, but we also have very strong commercial interests in making sure that commercial um, uh, carriers can, you know, use shipping lanes unaccosted. You know, we've had issues with piracy in the past and other parts of the world, but this is, you know, reminiscent of of a conflicts that we've had over the years, the last 50, 60 years. Uh, and it, re- it reminds voters uh, of our dependence on foreign oil and the globalization of the energy market. And so I think that's where Biden has to sort of figure out how to sell this to the American people as important to the United States, but also to the environmentalists, talk about where we are in terms of our energy independence. Now, when the the Houthi rebels, they said they have no issue launching more attacks um, after this. So how much of a threat is that? And and are the Houthi our only only, um, point of concern right now? Well, I mean, the biggest concern, uh, I think, to the United States directly is that we do have carriers in the Gulf. We have personnel all over uh, the Middle East, and we want to make sure that they are safe. I think that's the biggest fear the Biden administration has currently. But there are also lots of civilians who are in commercial shipping. And, you know, the United States feels some obligation to protect that kind of commerce. So I think these are the pressures on the Biden administration. I think we're fully equipped militarily to, to really, you know, deal with any and all of the attacks. But I think they're trying trying to show fairly massive force early. And when I say massive, I mean joining with the UK and doing it all at once, doing a number of different strikes uh, to limit civilian casualties, but also make sure that that those that would attack the United States know that there will be a response every time they do. And that's been, I think, Obama, Trump, and Biden. I don't see a lot of daylight across any of the three presidents in that regard. All right, let's shift gears a bit. Um, I would imagine, Wendy, if you live in Iowa, you're of a different stock. You're kind of a, a hardier breed. Is the weather going to matter for the caucuses? 
I think the weather doesn't matter as much as maybe those of us on the East Coast or West Coast who are experiencing bad weather uh, might be deterred from getting out the door. I think that the caucuses are locally held, uh, and so I think they are prepared for it. I think the Trump supporters and Trump himself has an advantage in that way because there's generally more enthusiasm consistently uh, among Trump voters in the in the nomination process so far, particularly in Iowa, than there are the DeSantis or Haley voters. So that's the big challenge for Nikki Haley. Can she draw close enough? She'll probably lose Iowa. I think most of us agree on that. But can she actually draw close enough to say, I'm viable going into New Hampshire and really put uh, put DeSantis on the sidelines? And, and if she can do that with some percentage of the vote, maybe more than the 15 percent or 20 percent, maybe 25 percent, something like in that range, I think it makes her more um, uh, more viable as a candidate going into New Hampshire, as I just said. But also the broader primary season becomes more attractive for donors for Nikki Haley if she can slice out a bigger coalition for her in Iowa. Remind me how the, the caucuses work. The the local priests, it's not winner take all, right? No, no, no. It's basically people, um, people, it's, it's yeah, it's deli- in terms of the precinct. So people actually go to their precinct. It can be a school, it can be a library, it can be somebody's home. Uh, and people vote in that area for um, for their uh, their choice, right? Uh, but, you know, the Republicans have pr- uh, proportional representation uh, in their primaries, at least, going till March 15th. So this is an interesting thing people are forgetting. You can pick up delegates uh, throughout this contest until the middle of March. So even though Trump looks like the big front runner, we don't get to win or take off for a couple more months. So that means people like Haley and DeSantis can pick off or collect delegates um, and I think that makes a difference, at least in the next couple of weeks. So if you can we'll dig into the economics a little bit of this. So like we do, we have the election year. Um, we have the war in Ukraine. We have the war in Gaza. What, how is this um, affecting the markets? If you can just dig deeper into the market reaction from all of this put together. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think the question is consumer confidence in both government, but also in market predictions, uh, because, you know, there was supposed to be a recession, didn't really turn out that way. Uh, we have maybe a soft landing, maybe there'll be a little bit more of a slowdown, but we've seen a very healthy job market just last month. So the question is, who are we going to believe? The same kinds of forces that have infiltrated politics in terms of misinformation, perception, you know, partisanship, the lens of looking at the economy through partisanship will start to affect people's trusting of economic predictions and the market at the very high elite levels, not. But for people who are thinking, do I put my money in a savings account in a bank that I know or do I put it in the stock market? You know, the bank that you know is becoming far more attractive given interest rates than the amorphous stock market. So I think that people who do watch consumer behavior in terms of the stock market have to pay attention to what's happening in politics now in terms of credibility to figure out where people will actually end up putting their money as we go forward this year. Uh, One of his cases, Donald Trump, showed up yesterday, kind of turned it into a, a political rally of sorts. Is there any degree that you can sense of maybe, as he makes all these appearances in court usually, that there's some Trump fatigue? Um, I think we're seeing the opposite, and I have been surprised by that um, that trend. But the opposite in terms of his core supporters, you know, there is no bad publicity in Trump's world, in Trump's mind. Every single opportunity uh, to present himself and make his case, he takes. And he takes with vigor and energy. And these are the kinds of things that are frustrating to the Biden campaign. So he will now get the kind of free press 
even if we all think maybe it's bad press, but he thinks it's good press, good opportunity, and he'll get the same kind of free press he got in 2016 uh, when everybody covered him. And I think that's what he's looking for. Will there be Trump fatigue three or four months from now among independents and suburban voters who have not yet committed in their choice for 2024? That's the big question mark. The more we see it here from Donald Trump in what we call the mainstream media, uh, do we get more tired of Donald Trump? He's betting the opposite at least for the primaries, to shore up his base. Once we get to the summer, I think that's where we really have to take a look at whether people are going to choose Trump and all that Trump brings versus, right now, Biden. Um, and that's where, we're, if we're going to see Trump fatigue, we'll start to see it then. Okay, what's, what's the gap between undecided versus his core supporters? So let's just say maybe there's, you know, the, the Republican Party, you know, you'll do polls and people say they'll vote for Trump, they'll vote for Trump. But essentially, there's about 38 to 40 percent, as we saw in the primaries in 2016 um, and might see again, uh, of support for Donald Trump that's unwaverable, that they will not budge. Um, so it does leave open the possibility of winning the nomination, but those people are Trumpers and they're never going to sway and they're never going to defect from Trump. But there's still a lot of open uh, GOP people. And also there are primaries that are open to independents to register, like New Hampshire, where you can register to vote in the Republican primary. So a lot of states have that opportunity. That's what could swing these Republican primaries. Not the closed primaries of the type that are typically in places like South Carolina, but the open primaries or semi-open where you can register as a Republican and then vote in that primary. If independents choose to do that, that is what the Haley campaign is counting on to make her competitive as we move forward. And hey, before we go really quickly, um, Biden's running mate. There's been different talk. I know you might mention it, too. Um, Kamala Harris still still sticking with him on, on the side or, or is he going somewhere else? Yeah, I've said before that picking somebody like Raphael Warnock, who won in Georgia four times technically, um, and who certainly in terms of making sure that you stay loyal to your promise to the African-American community to pick an African-American candidate, Biden said woman candidate. But nonetheless, that's somebody who can make Georgia competitive. Right now, Georgia won't be competitive, I don't think, in 2024. There's nobody on the ballot that really will generate Democratic turnout. So my proposal has been that if he is faltering generally in ways that are sort of systemic against Trump by the summer, by the convention, there could be a shift in who he selects as his VP. Wendy, always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the update. Wendy Schiller, professor at Brown University. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. What stands out to me right now, Lise, is the uh, two-year treasury, which is more policy reactive. That's seven basis points lower, 416. That would be just around the lowest since May. An unexpected decline in producer prices, reinforcing bets the Federal Reserve cuts rates this year. Of course, it comes after the hotter than expected CPI figures we got yesterday. Let's get the Mac review now. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist with Federated Hermes, joins us. Phil, uh, good to talk to you. Um, take your pick. What uh, what narrative have uh, you latched on to? Uh, there are many uh, from which to choose. Uh, I'm less inclined to uh, look at the, the PPI, the wholesale inflation this morning, uh, yesterday, CPI, critically important, and then the personal consumption expenditure index coming up later in the month. So looking at yesterday's CPI, that number was just much hotter than expected. 
uh, November year-on-year nominal was up 3.1%, December 3.4%, and that was a couple of ticks higher than expected. So what you look at what the Federal Reserve has been doing, uh, you've got some investors out there, I, frankly, I think the consensus is expecting the Fed to cut rates six times over the course of this year with that first cut coming in the month of March. We, we just don't see that. Uh, given how hot inflation still is, we think the Fed is going to be patient, vigilant, try to make sure that inflation is heading down to their 2% core PCE target. So we're looking at a couple of uh, rate cuts in the back half of the year, not six that are uh, you know, starting uh, in the month of March. And what about recession thoughts? Are they on the back burner? We are officially in the soft landing camp. Uh, that said, we still expect the economy to slow materially uh, over the course of the next uh, year or so. So you look at this fourth quarter that's going to get flashed in about two weeks. We're at 1.5% GDP growth. That compares to the third quarter at 4.9%. That's a pretty significant decline. And then as you look at, say, the first three quarters of this year, uh, we're going to be limping along, we think, at about a 1% run rate. So the Federal Reserve, in our view, has done exactly what it intended to do. Over the last two years, they took the funds rate from 0 to 5.5%. They cut their balance sheet from $9 trillion to you know $7.7 trillion. They were hoping to see the economy slow, the uh, rate of unemployment increase a little bit, uh, inflation come down materially, and all of that's playing out. At this point, I think they just want to be, you know, very careful, very cautious, very patient to make sure that inflation is sustainably moving down to their target. I think they'll come to that conclusion by the time we get to, say, the July FOMC meeting. I don't want to get too wonky, but I'm still having a little trouble wrapping my uh, 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 thoughts around the shelter component uh, and how that specifically is measured and whether it really is accurate at this point. Well, we can discuss or debate whether or not it's accurate or not, but here's the big picture, that that inflation peaked last year and is coming down. No question. Full stop. But you look at the housing market, and in calendar 21 and calendar 22, housing prices in the United States went up by 50%, 5-0%. So while it's absolutely true that inflation is generally coming down, and that housing prices have sort of peaked here, we're not seeing a 50% decline in housing prices. And and the investment that we make as individuals in our homes, for a lot of us, is the most significant investment that we have in our personal portfolios. I think that's weighing on consumer attitude and consumer mentality. And then that translates back into the, uh, the, uh, uh, the rental component of the CPI calculation, which accounts for about 40% of that number. So it will come down and wash itself out over time, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. And, and to some degree, that's creating some of the noise and some of the stickiness in the data. So with all that, that said, Phil, CPI, PPI, um, how are you changing your strategy moving into 2024? So we sort of made that change back in late October. Uh, when the S&P 500 got to that 4,100 level, uh, we felt that that was dramatically oversold, uh, and we felt that we could get to the 4,800 level by the end of this year, the 5,200 level by the end of calendar 24. And we felt that the, the, the rally last year 
was disproportionately driven by the mag seven and we felt that there was going to be reversion to the mean there so what we wanted to do and and we're maintaining that strategy now is 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 look at the sectors of the market that had been left for dead that we felt would would uh, would finally find some love so uh domestic small cap growth domestic large cap value and international the areas that we think are going to be the winners uh in the fourth quarter of last year and over the course of calendar 24. All right, your view overall of technology in the new year and then since we got their earnings today, the uh, the financials. So, uh, you know, growth stocks, technology stocks are, are still great companies. I'm not going to tell you that that Google or Softy or Nvidia are bad companies. They're not. The, the question is that valuations may have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves in terms of all of the AI FOMO that we experienced over the course of last year. Uh, so uh, at this point, we are slightly underweight uh, growth in technology, but we're not zero. Uh, we're, we're, we're maintaining a slight underweight position. Financials are one of the areas that we really like, along with energy and healthcare. Those were areas you look at financials, for example, this time last year, first quarter of last year, the, those stocks were absolutely obliterated based upon the, the problems with the commercial real estate uh, market. A lot of those stocks were down 50%. Uh, they, they sort of double bottomed in the fall and then have started to come back up. So there's a lot of catch up that has to happen there. And, and you look at some of the quality numbers, for example, that came out of JP Morgan this morning, we think financials are a sector that, that's probably going to do pretty well over the course of this year as, as they sort of get back on trend in terms of valuation. Phil, disinflation, good for markets or not good for markets? I, I think everyone would be happy to see the Fed hit their core PCE number at 2%. But but he, here's sort of the interesting thing. We're, we're rapidly approaching that number. And, and by our count, we could be there by the end of this year, or the beginning of next year. But you look at the Fed's latest SCP, the Summary of Economic Projections, that they published just in the middle of December. They're telling us that they're not confident that we're going to get to that 2% level until the end of calendar 2026. That, that's three years from now. So where's the disconnect here? Is the Fed being too conservative or, or do they know something that we don't know, that this last mile, so to speak, on getting to that 2% target is going to be like hand-to-hand -hand combat? And, and they're taking a very prudent, uh, very patient approach just to make sure that things are moving in the right direction. All right. Unfair question time. Uh, Year-end S&P 500 target. Uh, not unfair. 5,200 is our number. Okay. We're right now at forty-seven seventy-six. Also, you yeah. know, still we, waiting we, for that. We, we think we think we're going to be up eight or nine percent over the course of this year, which is a very modest year compared to the you know twenty-four percent gain we saw last year. Phil, always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Uh, happy Friday. Have a great weekend, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist with Federated Hermes. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at ten a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg eleven thirty. Well, we all know about geopolitical risk, uh, Lise. We saw oil mm -hmm. pop higher after U.S. and allies launched airstrikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen. As an investor, can you mitigate risks like that or should you even try? Uh, let's get some answers this morning. 
Global Macro View with Jeffrey Kleintop, the global strategist, chief global strategist at Charles Schwab. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we call them risk assets for a reason. Uh, should I be losing sleep over events over which I have no control? Well, these uh, these types of events are, um, gosh, it, you know, just an ever-present risk when it comes to investing. We've seen backups, uh, a choke point at the Panama Canal for months now. It's only getting worse as we head into February, as the the cargo traffic through that through that uh, particular vital uh, global supply chain link is really cutting back to less than 50% of capacity by February. 40% of the world's freight traffic moves through the Panama Canal, that's an issue. The Red Sea certainly moves a lot of energy, yet the world is oversupplied right now. And so I think that's one of the reasons, yes, we're seeing a bounce in energy prices, but we are not in a deficit situation. And as a result of that, I think this is something that can be um, uh, probably absorbed. We're not likely to see the type of surge to input prices that we saw during the pandemic tied to supply chain issues related to these particular threats at these two vital supply chain choke points. That could be different were they to linger into the latter part of this year, where maybe we run into an undersupply situation with energy. But for right now. No, I don't think you need to lose sleep over this, just expecting this is part of uh, one of those risks when it comes to investing. Now, something else people might lose some sleep over, interest rates. I want to talk and give it a little economic outlook. Yesterday, we heard Cleveland Fed President Loretta Messer. She said central bankers probably will have to wait past March before they can start cutting interest rates. What's your take on this? I think that the market has gotten a little carried away with the magnitude of rate cuts likely in 2024. I think it's probably something closer to what the Fed has been telling us, maybe three or four rate cuts rather than five or six. And some of the reason for that is the potential volatility in the path of inflation. We know inflation rarely subsides in a straight line. And we're now beginning to see this as we get closer to the Fed's target. It's getting harder and harder to push those numbers down. We know housing remains very challenging in the U.S. to try and push those housing rental rates down. And the result is that yes, it may take a little bit longer. So I think the rally we saw in the market at the end of last year, enthusiasm around a soft landing and a flood of rate cuts might need to be tempered early this year as maybe we see the, a push out in the beginning and the magnitude of the number of cuts we expect from the Fed. Hey, Jeff, is disinflation good for markets or not? Well, it's generally good in that it, it lowers borrowing costs and, and, you know, we generally see a little bit more investment by businesses, but we've really yet to see that pick up, right? So we're still in an environment of much higher rates than businesses have been used to a few years ago. And so we're not seeing the type of capital expenditures or hiring that would normally go along with, uh, with lower rates and, and the disinflation. So in general, it's a good thing, but it takes some time for that begin to show up in economic activity. Hey, Jeff, so big bank earnings out today. That's been the big talk. If rates go lower, what's the impact of margins? I mean, is that a, still a place to invest? I do think financials are our favorite sector for 2024, and there's a variety of reasons. One is that uh, you've got this balance of, you know, what what are banks going to earn in the short term on their cash, balanced by the fact that they hold a lot of maybe longer dated fixed income because of that's how they hold their reserves, and of course we all know uh, the challenges that uh, that caused last year with uh, the the route in some of those banking stocks uh, on uh, on that big surge in interest rates. So there's that balance in terms of what the yield curve does this year, but maybe even 
more importantly is the credit outlook and looking at the credit picture it looks relatively bright usually we're going to see soaring bankruptcies through a, a deeper downturn in the economic in, in the economy we didn't get that this time and we may not uh, businesses seem to have been holding more cash uh, the economy seems to be managing its way through this uh, downturn in manufacturing with a bit more strength in services and the result of that is that we may see much less in terms of losses and provisioning for losses by banks so uh, actually pretty bright outlook for, for the banks given how they are braced on a valuation basis for a more difficult environment. What's the outlook for the consumer? You, you mentioned uh, loan loss provisions and credit cards probably not as, as high as we would have expected but uh, what is the outlook there for the consumer? So much is going to be dependent, I think, upon the job market. Uh, we've seen uh, some signs of, of, of layoffs last year, but really it's not much of a follow through. Businesses still, still seem to be hoarding labor. And we know that a lot of consumer spending really comes down to confidence in the employment situation and, and, and wages. And as long as that remains fairly high, I think you can see a consumer that continues to spend. And what about your 2024, your whole global outlook? What are you liking right now? So I, I'm actually looking outside the U.S. I, I, you know, overall, what we've seen is a pivot, but not less of a pivot towards rate cuts and more of a pivot to international outperformance after years of the U.S. market leading the way. Sure, last year on a cap-weighted basis, the S&P 500 uh, beat the rest of the world. But if you look at what the average stock did using the equal-weighted benchmarks, we actually saw the EFI index outperformed the S&P 500. The average international stock beat the average U.S. stock, really eclipsed by just those seven magnificent stocks uh, in the AI universe that really led the U.S. cap-weighted indices to outperform. I think that broader performance is going to be revealed this year uh, in a period where we're going to see some volatility in the economic data, in the inflation picture. I think those stocks uh, outside the U.S., lower valuations, uh, maybe a better earnings environment as the manufacturing sector recovers, that looks brighter to me. So I'm going to I think we'll see the first year in a long time of international market outperformance. I look to uh, Charles Schwab when I want to know about uh, fund flows. What uh, what are you seeing on that front? Investors are still favoring fixed income. Uh, money is flowing into the bond market after many years where it was just unattractive to be there. So that's where we're seeing money go. But at the margin, we're also seeing money flow into international equities. Perhaps that's a little bit of rebalancing after last year where the U.S. outperformed. But it is interesting to note, this has been several months now, we've seen more money flowing into international markets than the U.S. markets. And I'm speaking broadly for the industry as a whole. And that's encouraging to me as well as investors maybe reconsider their portfolios and broaden that diversification. Hey, Jeff, before we go, um, quickly, we started this segment here talking about risk. I want to bring it back full circle here. So you can hedge risk, but is hedging worth it because it's not cheap? <laughs> It really is not cheap, and I think that's uh, one of the one of the challenges here. I, and, and one of the benefits of having a diversified portfolio right now, we just talked about, is the fact that bonds are actually paying you. Uh, they, they offer some interest now, and they're offering a little bit of an offset when we go through these periods of volatility. Just this morning, you know, rally in the bond market on on this you know revelation of these these attacks on the Houthi rebels, and so you get a little bit of that vol the volatility dampening effect in your portfolio with that classic 60-40 mix that uh, maybe. That's back as a as a dampening factor after so many years where fixed income really didn't act as an effective uh, a hedge to, to equity volatility. Maybe we're beginning to see that now. Yeah, I missed out on five percent. Is uh, what is it three ninety three right now on a ten year? Is that still a, a screaming buy? We still think that's attractive uh, and a reason to extend duration. Uh, we think that the. the 
around year end, yields may be around that same level. So we don't see a big rally in the fixed income markets, but we don't see a further sell-off either. And that means you can pocket some of that yield and benefit from the volatility dampening effect. Jeff, always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Jeffrey Kleintop, the Chief Global Strategist, joining us from Charles Schwab. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Uh, Lisa, here's a question for you. Yes. What is it that keeps you up at night? Um, you probably sleep my like kids. a baby. I don't know. I'm, I'm always worried about them. That keeps me up at night. I know. It's pretty much yeah. everything. Well, the folks at the conference board put that question to global CEOs. Uh, Dana Peterson is chief economist at the conference board. With the results of their survey. Um, so, Dana, welcome, first of all. Are the big wigs in the C-suite gloomy, happy, or what? It's kind of a mix. They're very worried about recessions and slowdowns as well as high inflation and geopolitics, but they are looking forward to growth and they certainly have plans in terms of expansion and also investments and in innovation to, to make sure that they do grow over the next year. Now, what are, what are their biggest worries? I know recession, inflation, I mean, are they ready for it? How are they preparing? Well, the interesting thing is that given those two things that they're very, very worried about, they are not prepared to deal with another crisis having to do with a recession or high inflation. They're also very worried about labor shortages and geopolitical risks, including wars. And for most of those things, they are not really ready. But they are thinking about, well, how do we push through despite these very high risks. And certainly when it comes to labor shortages, they're looking at attracting and, and, and retaining top talent. So that includes things like investing in their talent, AI, 
upskilling and retraining. So they're certainly trying to find their way through the fog. Uh, what is it that backs up those views? Is it anecdotal evidence? Is it sales figures? I mean, what, they have to be gloomy for a reason, right? Well, CEOs are notorious for looking ahead and looking down the road. And certainly, it's also going to be colored by recent experience. Certainly in recent experience, they've seen major increases in input costs. And certainly, that includes higher interest rates. The cost of capital is elevated. And all that feeds into inflation. They've seen around the world, China slowing, Europe is slowing. A number of conflicts are causing disruptions in production and trade and investments. And all those things have gotten them very worried. So with all these negative things that, that, that we're hearing, how do they even plan to grow profits in, in 2024? Well, they're looking at expansion. So expansion means looking at new regions and, and, and countries to invest in, new lines of business, looking at new products and new services, and also using tools like AI to really enhance the performance of their businesses and also their workers. And they think all of this is going to be great for not only cutting costs and, and driving the bottom line, but also increasing profits. Well, wait a second, if they're um, worried about labor and they want to hold on to their workers and top talent, are they paying them more? I mean, is that an inflationary picture we're looking at? Well, certainly when we look at the BLS data, Yes, in those industries that are suffering from labor shortages, they are paying their workers more. And also those industries where they're worried about people quitting or a lot of people are retiring, they are raising wages. But again, that's very costly. So businesses are trying to find ways around that. And a lot of that's through digital transformation and technology. Now, you're talking about the workers getting paid, but where are they working? That's the, the big question, this whole battle back and forth between are you in the office, are you at home, where are you going? Um, are CEOs, are they just throwing in the towel and saying, you know what, you guys do what you wanna do? <laughs> or are they gonna try and try and get more people in the office? Well, it's interesting, we did ask about the imperative to bring people back to the office, and it was really low. CEOs are not that focused on it. Um, they're more focused on flexibility and making sure that their workers are having a good experience, that they're collaborating, that the, the culture is very important, that there's a right culture to keep their workers and also to attract new workers. So again, you know, I think they're recognizing that remote work is here to stay in some form, but they're really trying to enhance the culture to make sure that people do, when they come into the office, they have a good experience and they're productive. Is this survey broken down by region and industry? And if so, what, if anything, does that tell you? Yes, it's definitely broken down by region. And so that includes the US, Europe, Japan, Latin America, and then the rest of the world. And um, when we look at those regions, there's really not much of a big difference in terms of how CEOs think in terms of the big issues. Though I would note that Japan was very much worried about labor shortages and also US-China relations. Um, when it comes to industry, we looked at finance, manufacturing, and then everyone else. And certainly there's not, uh, there's a big focus in terms of, of finance on the cost of capital and higher interest rates. But for the most part, there's a lot of synergies, a lot of uh, commonality in the way that CEOs around the world are viewing business, the business environment. Yeah, with manufacturing, since it's been in recession, I would imagine they're a little, little more pessimistic than, the mo than uh, most. Yeah, they definitely are. And you're right, there has been this manufacturing recession. And a lot of that reflects the fact that 
Manufacturing was one of the pandemic darlings. It did extremely well when everyone was stuck at home and buying things. But certainly as we shifted more towards a better balance between goods and services consumption, manufacturing experienced a slump. And certainly when you look around the world, um, you see that there's very weak growth in China, also very weak growth in Europe, in and out of recession, UK, uh, Germany may go back into recession. And these are areas that you know, tend to be big manufacturing hubs and also big consumers of goods. And so if you have weak demand in those areas, that's certainly going to impact the manufacturing sector as well. Hey, Dana, we have about probably a minute left. Um, you had mentioned AI, so I want to kind of bring it back there because this has been a, another problem in the workplace too. Um, are CEOs, are they embracing it? You had mentioned they have to do some more training. How are they tackling AI in uh, 2024? Well, it's interesting. They're welcoming AI with open arms. Most CEOs that we uh, canvassed said they, they, are, they have already adopted AI or have plans to do so. So they're overwhelmingly for it. They think that it's going to enhance profitability. It's going to make their workers more productive, but they are wary. Uh, they are aware that there are some risks and responsibilities. There may be more regulation. You have to think about how to make sure that AI is not going to compromise your intellectual property or even that there will be in unethical use. But for the most part, companies are very welcoming. They're, they're excited about AI. All right, Dana, always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Dana Peterson, the chief economist at the conference board. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.